Why do we experience deja vu? Why do you hear your name in noisy settings? Why do companies price their products ending in 99? Why are the cereal packages so big when the content doesn't require such a big pack? Why do you forget why you entered a room as soon as you enter it? Why do car accidents occur? Why do office settings have such bright lighting? Why does a song get stuck in your head and keeps playing in a loop? Why do fancy restaurants serve in small portions? How are sales executives successful at making us buy something we never intended to? Why do dietitians advise eating in smaller plates than bigger ones? Is eyewitness's testimony really reliable? What's the secret behind the secret? Hello, welcome to the Psych Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to talk about everything but psychology. Confused? The thing is, everything has an underlying psychological concept or an explanation behind it. Psychology is everywhere. We don't need to talk about psychology to talk about it. Talking about everything is the same as talking about psychology. I will take you through everything through the psychology's lens. You know what psychology is. but you don't know what psychology also is that's what i will talk about and you will be able to know what psychology is beyond what you know and think it is so without further ado let's start i remember once during my junior college i was scribbling about my science subjects about having to study so much about it not making sense to me of how it is even useful in our daily lives of course i was naive but my friend was a hardcore science lover and she gave me a yearning on how science is everywhere and that the life we are living with the advent of technology and all is all because of science it's true science is everywhere there is physics in something as basic as throwing and catching a ball chemistry in cooking and boiling water biology in eating and psychology in thinking and making decisions yes psychology too people assume it is like science but the matter of fact is that psychology is a science it is very conveniently put under the humanities label especially in the indian education system it's a sad reality and it both breaks my heart and makes me mad but things are changing now the perspective the level of understanding people have about it the percentage of students pursuing their career in this field as well as the job opportunities are changing and drastically increasing now when i say science is everywhere i also mean psychology is everywhere it is difficult if not impossible to think of a facet of life where psychology is not involved today you will find psychologists working not just in clinics and hospitals as is famously known but they also work in organizations in aviation engineering sports forensics the list will go on psychology helps us understand the nuances of everyday life our interactions with ourselves and others as well as our interaction with technology it explains why we think what we think and why we feel and behave as we do the good news is you don't need to spend years on a psychology degree to better understand the world around you Take a moment and think about what psychology means. 
वट इज इट अकॉर्डिंग टू यू डिप्रेशन एंजाइटी मेंटल डिसऑर्डर्स अ साइकोलॉजिस्ट अ थेरेपिस्ट अ रूम विद अ काउच हिप्नोसिस मेंटल पेशेंट्स इन मेंटल हॉस्पिटल्स एक्सेट्रा दीज आर द थिंग्स दैट मेजोरिटी ऑफ पीपल थिंक अबाउट वेन दे थिंक अबाउट साइकोलॉजी दिस इज द अंडरस्टैंडिंग दैट मोस्ट पीपल हैव अबाउट दिस डिसिप्लिन वाइल्ड मोस्ट ऑफ दीज आर ट्रू इट पोर्ट्रेज अ वेरी नैरो परस्पेक्टिव ऑफ वॉट साइकोलॉजी रियली इज Psychology is by definition a scientific study of the human mind and behavior. This definition too no way limits it to only mental disorders or psychological issues like stress. Psychology is applied to various other fields like advertising, marketing, economics, organizations, healthcare, even politics and many other areas. In this segment I will answer some of the questions and discuss the various applications of psychology. in simple day to day life as well as in different commercial fields this is my favorite segment of the episode and i'm sure you're going to find it really intriguing so let's just dive right into it ever had a song stuck in your head it keeps playing in a loop and you find it difficult to stop it i especially remember the time when i couldn't stop playing a very catchy bollywood song during an exam I'm sure we all have been there so let me explain why it happens. These bits of songs that crawl through your mind and find a home in the middle of nowhere and everywhere are called earworms. Musical earworms have different other names too like brainworm, involuntary musical imagery, sticky music, sticky tunes, musical itch and the stuck song syndrome. Earworms are involuntary, spontaneous and repetitive perceptions of a particular musical sound in the absence of an external version of that sound. It is like replaying music in the mind in the absence of the song being played in the background. These earworms appear spontaneously out of nowhere and we rarely have any conscious control over them. If we had conscious control over them, we would be able to stop them, right? Some of these involuntary musical bits are unwanted and annoying. some have no effect on us on our emotions and behavior whereas some are wanted and we actually enjoy it if the earworms are unwanted and annoying people either tolerate them till they die out or engage in active behaviors to get rid of them earworms are a relatable type of spontaneous cognitions that is thoughts that pop into our awareness randomly for no apparent reason research highlights a number of other cognitive and physiological processes as well as environmental cues that facilitate an earworm now we know what earworms are but why do they stick in your mind in the first place the ziegenick effect explains this the ziegenick effect named after its founder russian psychologist bluma ziegenick is a psychological phenomenon that describes a tendency to remember incomplete tasks or events more easily than tasks that have been completed The Ziegenick effect began as a simple observation when she noticed that waiters at a restaurant were able to keep track of complex orders and unpaid meals but once the orders were filled and paid for the waiters were unable to recall detailed information about the order This observation led her to study this phenomenon through a series of experiments in her lab According to the Ziegenick effect an interrupted or incomplete activity may be more easily recalled it states that people remember unfinished or interrupted tasks better than the completed tasks 
Incomplete, unidentified and unresolved music is like an unfinished thought that needs to be completed. People don't always recognize the earworm song or they don't remember the lyrics of the full song. They also don't always remember how it ends. Thus, an incomplete music creates a need for us to complete it. The incomplete nature of earworms plays a role here. That is why we either keep playing or repeating the bit of song in our mind or keep singing the same part again and again. Music that is not resolved sustains itself till it is resolved or dissipated. So, how to get rid of the earworm? Simply listen to the full song. The Ziegenich effect explains why listening to the song helps extinguish it. Like we know now, Ziegenich effect states that we remember unresolved and incomplete thoughts better than the completed or resolved thoughts. Involuntary thoughts occur because they are incomplete and the frequency of its reoccurrence depends on the need to complete and resolve them. If the earworm repeats excessively, it means there's a high need for it to be completed. So if a song is stuck in your head, stop whatever it is that you're doing and go listen to that song in its entirety from start to end. Singing the full song too can help. It's like getting done with the unfinished business, completing the incomplete task that is the earworm. Another trick to extinguish a song stuck in your head is to chew gum. Sounds silly but works. Basically, chewing diverts and blocks resources from the brain that are responsible for pushing music into the mind's ear. 90% of the population experiences an earworm once a week and 33% experience them daily. If you are a music composer and are struggling to create a hit song or want to create one, here's a tip for you. Bede Williams, a researcher from the University of St. Andrews, highlights the five factors of an earworm. 1. Surprise. Surprise can be musical, emotional or a tonal surprise. 2. Repetition. It is the repetition of the rhythm and the frequency of the repeated words. 3. Melodic potency. That is the influence of the musical content or the emotional value that it contains. 4. Predictability. So, predictability is how reliably and accurately a musical structure can be predicted before it occurs. And the fifth is receptiveness. This is the subjective experience and the perception of music. If your song comprises these factors that characterize an earworm, your song would be more likely to be stuck in people's minds. An earworm is more likely to be remembered, played and replayed, thus making your song a hit. If you are an Indian, you would sure know Yashraj Mukate and heard his creations. Why do you think that his dialogue with beats become such a massive hit giving him millions of followers? Of course his creations are unique but it also contains all the five factors of an earworm. Composing a song from dialogues which is basically like replacing lyrics of songs with dialogues that don't rhyme. Lyrics do rhyme and are written especially for songs but these dialogues that Yashraj picks are from serials, movies and interviews. Hearing a song created from such dialogues surprised the audience. Next is repetition that his songs clearly have. The lines are repeated as well as the rhythm. Third, melodic potency. His songs have for sure created an influence which is evident from his fame and the reach of his songs not just to us audience but also to celebrities. Fourth, predictability. His creations have the kind of predictability that if you heard it for 10 seconds you get an idea of the overall tone and can predict its next musical structure before you hear it. 
This is possible also because the compositions are short, not more than a minute as compared to songs that are approximately 3 to 5 minutes long. And the last is receptiveness, that is the subjective experience. The listeners are entertained by his creations and it gives a different kind of experience that is unique from the common experience of listening to songs. Yashraj Mukate's dialogue with beats has a great combination of all these five ingredients that make an ear warm and thus it received all the reach and love it did. Coming back to the Zeganik effect, now you understand why a song gets stuck in your head. However, this phenomenon is not just limited to ear worms. The Zeganik effect also explains why we remember TV series that end with a cliffhanger and movies that have an open to interpretation ending like Inception or those with unanswered endings like Bahubali. The most famous and frequently asked question after Bahubali was the Akhir Kattappa ne Bahubali ko kyu mara? which translates to why did Kattappa kill Bahubali? The movie ended with this unanswered question that would be answered only in its next sequel which was a year or two later. This incomplete nature of the movie created a buzz around it with everyone trying to find the answer to the question. It was this need to resolve the question which led everyone to rush to the theatres when the sequel released, making it a massive hit in the history of Indian cinema. Dietitians usually advise eating in smaller plates than bigger ones. Why is that? So in a Cornell University study, 85 nutrition experts gathered for an ice cream social to celebrate the success of a colleague. They were randomly given small or large bowls with a big or small serving scoop. They were then asked to complete a survey while the researchers secretly studied their bowls and their serving scoops. It was found that those given larger bowls served themselves 31% more without realizing it, while those with bigger serving scoops served themselves 14.5% more. This indicates that when we eat from a big plate or serve with a big spoon, we are likely to eat more, whereas when we eat in smaller plates, there are chances of us eating less. Our stomachs take longer to communicate to our brain that we are full. Visual sensation reaches the brain fast. Imagine two plates, one big and one small. Now imagine putting one big scoop of rice in each. Will the quantity of rice that is in reality the same in both actually look the same? You can even try this at your home to see the difference. When you serve yourself in a big plate, the food in it will look less compared to when you serve in a small plate. The same quantity of food will look like it's more in the smaller plate because it would occupy more area of the smaller plate compared to the area it would cover in the bigger plate. So when the visual sensation of your big plate reaches your brain, it interprets it as having lesser food and you end up serving more and eating more, whereas the opposite happens when you serve in a small plate. Your brain interprets it as having more food as it looks like that because of the size of the plate. So instead of letting your brain fool you into eating more, you can fool your brain into believing the food is more by using a small plate and eating less. Hence, if you want to avoid overeating or eating in the right quantity, go with the smaller plate. You would actually be eating less and your brain won't see it that way. Have you ever felt like you have experienced something before but you cannot recollect the details? Yes, deja vu. Almost 66% of Americans have reported experiencing deja vu. 
One fascinating fact is that it took nearly a century to settle down with the term deja vu. So more than a century ago in 1884 Osborn suggested that when we process information without paying full conscious attention to it the subsequent processing of the perceived information that is when we perceive the same information again it gives a feeling of familiarity to us when we fail to recollect this is what we call deja vu which literally means already seen so why do we experience deja vu According to the split perception theory deja vu happens when you see something at two different times the first time you see something for example in a moving vehicle you made the first impression of the view in that fraction of a second what our brain does is that it begins to form a memory of the incomplete glance with the collected information and ends up collecting a lot more information without us even realizing it So the next time you pay more attention to the same view you might feel that this is the first time you are seeing the view but your brain remembers the previous perception of the stored incomplete glance in simpler words when you saw the view for the first time you didn't notice it well but your brain registered and stored that view in memory hence the next time you see the same view it is a new view for you but for your brain it is simply one continued perception of the same view that is why it seems familiar to you it seems like you have seen it before or have experienced the same before but you fail to recall when where and more details another explanation is that our brain processes information at two paces fast and slow at a slow pace it integrates past memories into present and at the fast pace it processes immediate sensation an immediate sensation would come from recognizing something happening near you like hearing the whistle of a cooker you put on the stove or seeing the view in a moving vehicle both of these two processes involve the activation of various brain networks and areas according to james giardino a phd and a professor of neurology these two processes involve a number of brain networks including regions of the sensory cortex that function in sight hearing touch smell etc and networks of the hippocampus and temporal lobe that function in memory and the areas of the limbic system and prefrontal cortex that function in decision making coordinating these networks can be complicated and sometimes they don't sync properly and hence you feel as if you have had this exact conversation or experience before even if it is totally new these two pathways usually work in a harmonious way but they can stop working sometimes they become out of sync The fast pathway responds strongly and the slow pathway only catches up fractions of a second later. This is called a mismatch and it explains why something that has never occurred can feel like it has. Giardino says that networks of the temporal lobe and frontal cortex interpret this mismatch and we experience this as a memory playing out in real time which makes it seem as if we are re-experiencing something that is actually new. A study in Frontiers in Psychology in 2013 found deja vu comes from a memory conflict in the brain and the feeling persists while the brain tries to figure out what's real memory and what's not. Lee Winters, a neuroscientist and holistic wellness expert says, our brain senses familiarity. According to Winters, it might be possible that deja vu occurs when we detect familiarity stimulating the rhinal cortices. but don't activate the hippocampus which helps you recall more concrete memory details however experiencing deja vu indicates that your brain is working 
It is actually a good sign. It seems to reflect the brain's ability to process memories at different levels and at different speeds. So, are you more likely to experience deja vu in certain conditions? Yes, deja vu occurrences are generally more common in younger people. We experience the most deja vu between the age of 15 and 25. Also, the more stressed people are, the more they report experiencing deja vu. This could be because when you are under a lot of pressure or processing a whole heap of information at once, your brain is more likely to glitch and have difficulty lining up memory with real life. So ultimately, deja vu is a proof that the human brain is amazing. If a mismatch or a glitch can result in something that is so extraordinary, it's a true testament to just how remarkable our brain is. So the next time you experience deja vu, you will know what it means and why you're experiencing it. So instead of being confused about what happened or not before, just embrace it for the fantastic glitch it is. Driving a car and accidents. Even with the ever increasing rate of petrol, cars still are the main mode of transport for most people. Most of us use our cars to go to work or basically to go from one point to the other. When you break down driving as a task, it involves perception, cognition, emotion and social acumen to operate a car. You have to process the information conveyed by lines, signs and symbols as well as navigate while steering and share the space on the road with all the other drivers. So, driving is pure behavior. With more and more cars and drivers on the road, it becomes interesting to understand why and why not accidents occur. We are aware of the fact that car accidents occur, but what's the reason behind these accidents? Whose fault is it? 11.6% of the accidents in the US involved a distracted driver. According to National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, which is an agency in the US, Drivers who were distracted when they crashed are 50% more likely to be killed or seriously injured than non-distracted drivers. Distractions are divided by researchers Stutz et al. into four categories visual distractions, audible distractions, physical distractions and cognitive distraction. So visual distractions are those that divert your vision away from the road. For example, if a person is in a car with their kids sitting on the back seat A visual distraction would be if they turn their eyes to the rear view mirror to check on their misbehaving kids. Audible distraction is when your attention is distracted because of noise or sound. So from the same example, if the kid screams as the brother pulls his hair, that would be an audible distraction for the driving mother. Third, physical distraction. So physical distraction is when you do a physical action that isn't a part of driving. So the mother using one hand to wrangle the offending brother back to his side of the car is a physical distraction. Cognitive distraction is any task you do that requires thinking, talking, answering and the like. So the mother giving a lecture to the kids of how to be nice to siblings would act as a cognitive distraction. Studies have shown that driving is affected differently by different types of distractions. New technologies such as in-vehicle information and navigation systems like the GPS are helpful sure but they are providing more opportunities for distractions. According to NHTSA, GPS devices involve all the four types of distraction: visual distraction of reading the display, 
oral distraction of listening to directions from the device, the physical distraction of pressing keys, and cognitive distraction of interpreting and processing the directions of the device. Simply having the device in the car also increases distraction because even when the drivers don't need directions, they simply can't resist playing with it, scrolling through the various menus, testing different displays and what not. Cell phones are yet another technology that interferes with driving. Like navigation systems, cell phones also involve every type of distraction. Studies in both Canada and Australia have shown that cell phone use is associated with four times the risk for a crash. Talking on call even if hands-free is distracting. Texting while driving is another cell phone-related threat. An Australian report found that drivers take their eyes off the road four times more when texting than they normally do. Humans have limited attention than they believe they have. Our attention on driving is compromised when there is a distraction, any type of distraction. David Strayer studied cell phone impact on driving for more than five years in his laboratory using driving simulators. He carried out a series of experiments to study multitasking in the automobile. This particular experiment, however, was studied in the real naturalistic driving situation. In this observational study, they aimed to study the effects of cell phone use on the performance of drivers by monitoring the behaviors of more than 1700 drivers in their own cars. These drivers were not aware that they were being observed by two research assistants. They were observing if the drivers were talking on their cell phones and whether the drivers came to a complete stop at the intersection. The results found that the drivers who used cell phones were more likely to fail at the four-way intersection compared to drivers who did not use cell phones. One possible interpretation of this finding is that the cell phone conversations reduce the attention paid to information in the external environment that is on the road. According to the US government figures, in 2012, distracted driving killed more than 3,300 people and injured 4,21,000. That's a lot. Makes us wonder, is there any way to reduce, if not stop, these accidents? In 1974, psychologist John Povitsky tested a small inexpensive gadget that would help reduce accidents. This device was the third brake light. The third brake light is placed in the base of rear windshields. In this experiment, Dr. John equipped 343 San Francisco taxicabs with the third brake light and left 160 taxis with no additional light. So the 343 taxicabs with the third brake light are the experimental group and the other 160 without it are the control group. These taxis were then randomly assigned to taxi drivers by the taxi dispatchers. The study was conducted for 10 months and Dr. John found that taxis with the third brake light had suffered 60.6% fewer rear end collisions than had the taxis without the light. Additionally, drivers of taxis with a third brake light that was stuck in the rear by other vehicles were injured 61.1% less often than were drivers of taxis without the light. Also, repairs to all taxis with the light cost 61.8% less than did repairs to taxis without the light. In conclusion, this study proved that a third brake light provides an extra signal to the distracted drivers and helps reduce accidents. This study found its way into being applied in practical life. 
the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration (NHTSA) repeated this experiment on a larger scale and concluded that these third brake lights, or as they formally call the center high-mounted stop lamps, do reduce accidents and injuries. Subsequently, in 1986, NHTSA began requiring all new cars to have a third brake light. In 1994, they extended that requirement to all new light trucks as well. It's amazing how a psychological experiment made its way into not only helping reduce accidents and the subsequent loss of lives, but also came to be implemented by the national agency into making new automobile rules. With this, we have reached the end of this episode. I hope you have gained a broader understanding of psychology and learned something new and interesting. One of the reasons why I fell in love with psychology initially was for how it had answers, explanations, and solutions to simple as well as complex daily phenomena. I found the experiments conducted in psychology laboratories fascinating. Through this episode, I wanted to share a glimpse of that with you. Hope you liked it and have gained knowledge about the various applications of psychology as well as its different fields. The best way to learn and increase knowledge is by questioning everything. Always ask why. Be inquisitive. Just please don't ask if psychologists can read minds. And if you are a psychology student or a professional and someone does ask you if you can read minds, tell them you can do way more than that. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in the next episodes. Till then, stay psyched.